0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast with me Joshua Jackson. Uh, This podcast is all about hearing from authentic leaders from across the country, gaining an understanding of the mindsets of the people that get up each day and make this country work. Um, Today we're being rejoined by Roy Moed from Lifebooks. Roy, welcome back onto the show. Thanks,
1: Joshua. Great to be back.
0: No, It's going to be an absolute pleasure. I'm sure we're going to be having a, a very different conversation. It's the one you had with my my colleague, Matt, um, a couple of years ago now. But uh, if you wouldn't mind, can you just give us and give me and, and listeners a, a bit of a background into your company and, and what it is that you do?
1: Yeah, you're right. The last conversation we had, we were just uh, entering into COVID. So that was uh, quite traumatic for many businesses in the UK. Lifebook was set up some 10 years ago for my father to try and record his life story so that I had those stories as he aged, but also, more importantly, to give him a project, something to focus on at a time that was tough. And during COVID, that was even worse as elderly people were isolated and not able to go on cruises or see their families. But we've now done over 10,000 people around the world hold a private autobiography in their hand. And the whole idea is face to face interviews, not over Zoom or Skype or Teams, um, because who wants to be crying and telling the story about, you know, your son dying in the war or your wife Mm -hmm. passing away or even laughing when the phone goes down or it starts buffering. So uh, it's face to face interviews, which we then get professionally written and turn into beautifully handmade books, which last some 400 years. They're on archive paper and they're for the family so we don't publish we don't sell the books they're just for the family
0: they're just mementos of lives well lived i suppose and i can imagine it's absolutely fascinating talking um to people actually gaining that understanding as well Um, it must be quite nice for them and and obviously for the writer
1: i think there's such a, a breadth of stories and they are lives well lived and sometimes lives not so well lived
0: um anything from
1: sort of ordinary rock stars if you can have an ordinary rock star we had had one guy just wanted one copy all the way through to a tribute book for someone who dropped dead age 42 and uh his wife had two children uh, well she was pregnant and had one kid and they'd never know their dad and she wanted that story
0: told i can imagine that was actually quite special for for everybody involved i hadn't really thought about it from that perspective either of giving it to to loved ones that wouldn't know otherwise so no that's that's a really nice thing to hear
1: i think what my father said in his book is that he was remembering things he didn't know he had forgotten and with doing a private memoir at life book here what they what people are doing is they're ensuring those memories and it's only now latterly when um People have done them sort of four or five years ago. And we're hearing that as they start forgetting things, they're they're kind of referencing them. They're going back to things, you know, where did I meet my wife? Uh, Literally down to that, because as people age, they start forgetting these things. So you can't ensure your memory, but you can ensure your memories if you write them down.
0: Absolutely. And how long have you been running this business?
1: And we started in 2012, uh, my wife and I, um, she's my co-founder and uh, started it then. It's taken quite a while to expand into the U.S. And now we're in over 41 countries. Um, we're doing them in Hawaii and in Mauritius and anywhere because the actual system and the process, which came from my background in the airline industry and in process there, is something which is, rep, rep, I can't say it, replicable and scalable. Yeah.
0: Um, no, that's It's amazing that you're actually able to do it across language across time really it's uh, uh, especially across time when you consider the, the subject matter and, and as you said remembering things as well but you know obviously the last couple of years has been pretty challenging and it was one of the main areas that you were, were talking about last time you were on getting away from doing things digitally getting away from from skype and i am assuming that you dropped that as soon as it was possible to do so
1: yeah we had about 47 customers who actually did it on zoom and we were very pleased, you know, the oldest we converted was a 96-year-old in America who then got back in touch with his grandchildren. But they were a whole queue of people waiting for face-to-face interviews so that we could get back to the reality of it. And I think what you find is that everybody enjoys it. The interviewer is actually having a good time hearing fascinating stories. And then the ghostwriter, our professional writers, mm-hmm. they are... Getting the chance to write a story in somebody else's voice, but still putting some creativity into it. So it's got to sound like your dad or your granddad, but it's, um, it's essential that uh, the story comes out.
0: I can imagine that's quite the skill as well, being able to um, you know, envisage yourself as the person whilst also Trying to remain true to facts uh, and fun, or seriousness, um, depending on, on what's been going on. I'm assuming that now you've gone back fully to in person uh, writing, in person meetings, or are you still, you know, operating with that little bit of uh, your remote work where, where possible and where requested?
1: Our um our core team we've got um, we were 20 people when we talked last. We're 30 now. Mm. Um, they range from literally in Cape Town to uh, Los Angeles. Those are our employees, those are project managers, editors, typesetters, proofreaders, et cetera. Um, They they are are all working remote except for four of them who come into the office now. However, the 300 or so ghostwriters and interviewers, Mm -hmm. they're local. They are local. The interviewers are literally within 30 minutes of the person giving the story and they go and visit and face to face. And the um, ghostwriters are literally anywhere in the world, but, for example, our best American ghostwriter is in Rio. And it's important that you've got the same culture in the ghostwriter, you know, an Asian with an Asian, an Irishman with an Irish, a Canadian, etc. Otherwise, you wouldn't get the knowledge. But what I'm really proud of with with Lifebook is that um, we are effectively exporting this all over the world because the printing and, and binding is handmade in the north of london uh, even if the paper's imported from america mm. it's very much a british export but with a local interviewer sitting in as i said uh, los angeles or, or hawaii
0: yeah worldwide with that local touch which is you know especially when you're making something of such you know, delicate value Really, having that quality to it must be quite nice for, uh, for everybody involved. But you know, from I our sides, oh, sorry,
1: the British uh, the te- people trust the British sort of literary ability. Even though my own's not great from my background, <laughs> I shouldn't be in publishing. I'm dyslexic, but books made in the land of Shakespeare, you know, yep. printed here. Our editors are all English, even though we have to edit American editing and English editing is mm. different. But um, people respect that, and uh, wherever we sell
0: it in the world. Yeah, and um, you know, one of the the areas that we're always sort of amazed by, and part of the reason why we do this podcast and we work with business leaders and learn from business leaders across the country, putting people together, is so that we can take lessons um, from different people's experiences, the way that they, as I said, they get up each day, their mentality, their mindsets. Do you find that you, your writers, your team actually take lessons from those that you've been writing about as well? Or do you think it's a little bit more removed? Um, how, how, how do you find that?
1: I think it's, it's undoubted. There is a huge learning because a lot of our team are under 30. And for example, may not have ever seen a black and white photograph. I know it sounds <laughs> funny, but all of our books tend because people are starting off in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, in their life stories, the, the older ones of our clients. And they're all black and white photos. Mm. And they, they love them. Um, and then they are, start to learn things, which, you know, we, we take for granted today, anything from a, a mobile phone to a, a fax machine, which is now out of date. But you know, those people didn't even have fax machines. They didn't even have landlines in those yeah. days. One of our books is called I Come From a One-Tap Family. You know, they, they shared a bath. All each person in order. The bath night was once a week, and the person who's telling the story, he was the youngest, and he was last. He was the fifth <laughs> to use the same bath water. Yeah. Well, you you talk to people today, um, the youth of today, and they can't believe a story like that.
0: <laughs> no, the rate of change over just you know 80 years really has been been quite incredible when you think about it that way isn't it and uh, you know some of the things we take for granted today you know really would have would have been magic um you know it's it's always the saying isn't it shows somebody from uh, 150 years ago a mobile phone and it's it's indistinguishable from magic but um, that's uh, that's a, a really really interesting point and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up actually you know for for listeners actually thinking back to even their childhood <laughs>
1: One of our printers has on his website is if you want to read the magna carta from i think it's 1086 um you can still go with white gloves you can turn the pages mm. If you want to read a floppy disk from 1996, you can't.
0: (laughs) Yes, that's very true. I can imagine it's far more difficult to find somebody to be able to read a floppy disk these days than it would be. Yeah. (laughs) Again, I, again, never considered that either. It's, uh, you know, it's just showing my, uh, probably my age here of being uh, uh, slightly younger and, um, you know, just taking some of these technological changes for granted. Uh. Not long. Sorry.
1: That's 25 years ago. It's not long. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, I, I just about remember being able to use a floppy disk, never mind uh, <laughs> anything else. But, you know, that's actually brings me on to, to a good talking point. Um, you know, you, previously when you were speaking and you came on, you briefly mentioned the fact that you have mentored people over your time, that you like to, uh, you know, pass on your leadership skills and your leadership ideals. Um, you know, can you tell me what that involves, how you've done it and, and why you like doing that?
1: I think um, I, I belong to this organization, YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. And part of that is giving back in terms of within, within the organization and, and mentoring some of the younger people. But what I was fascinated by is that everybody can be a mentor and can be a mentee. Mm. And what I mean by that is it doesn't matter. I'm 69 now. I can learn so much from you, Joshua. You know, I could in a conversation in the right environment, knowing what you could teach me and recognizing that you could teach me. It's not just because you're older than someone that you could mentor them. It's about life skills. And, you know, the whole thing about um, the council is about leadership. Mm. And we achieve that leadership in different ways. So whether it's in a a business life life book or whether it's in um, some of the other things that I get involved in, I just did a little bit of work in Ukraine. on the border there it's all about how you lead others Mm. and uh, i I think that's the important part about mentoring is is leaving other people with uh, a way to understand the opportunities that they can benefit from if they open their mind to it
0: Mm. yeah one of my uh sort of Sort of founding elements, uh, founding principles, the way I sort of my, around myself and, and with the team is that nobody has a monopoly on good ideas. And I actually do think that's vitally important when you are having your know, frank discussions. And, um, you know, somebody coming new into an organization or new into a, a group can. You know, strike on gold, the same as somebody that's been there for for twenty years or or twenty five. I do think you know having that um, uh, that open mind, shall we say, is, is important. It seems like you've got the same thing when it comes to you know learning and, and the mental elements and the, the back and forth there. So that's actually yeah. you know again you know quite impressive to uh, to be hearing. But you know at the moment, um, I just want to take a bit of a deep dive back into. You know, before life books, you were involved in various elements to, with, of the aviation industry.
1: Yeah, I, I started a business in '78 after going to what I call the University of Life—the 29 jobs I lived through. Um, I started that in um, 1978 with uh, a friend and grew it to 600 people mm-hmm. uh, globally, and um, exited in about 2007. But the life skills that I learned in that was dealing with what um, I mentioned before, the seven plagues, everything that the world could throw at you in the airline industry, um, which was a, which was very tough. But it was that, and going back to your point about mentoring, it, it's not just about um, nobody o- uh, has a ownership on good ideas, I think you said.
0: Um, or Monopoly like, on good ideas. But not,
1: yeah. yeah. But it's also not just the good ideas, it's the life skills. You know, we each do the same thing or could do the same thing and we'll take away something different from that. And it's how you apply that is is the learning. And I think, you know, you you and I will see two things which are very similar and we'll take away a different view on that and can teach someone else a different view on that.
0: Mm. Yeah, your uh, independence and your own learned experiences, I think, is the uh, uh, the term there um but when it comes to obviously I just wanted to, to go back obviously you ran a business um you know in a, aviation aviation at the moment is going through some some sort of tough times in the news and things as well but uh to to really focus on something that you you sent over before uh, we had a chance to record this there was a, a just a, a nice interesting tidbit that you were talking about you know no, no longer being stressed, uh, not feeling things, the pressure piling up. And and there was an example that you, you sent to me before we had a chance to speak, which is about flying a, a small plane in a race from Australia to England. Um, that sounds amazing. Yeah. Can you expand on that and, and, and what that taught you?
1: Well, I think the, the stress aspect is is just, I think people are built differently and, and some people worry about everything before it happens. I, I don't think I think about enough things to worry about them. If you know what I mean? I, I wait till it happens and then I try and find a solution to it. And then there, it isn't a problem. I I believe if you try to find solutions to all the potential problems Mm. that could go wrong and flying in that race was, was one of those things. We had a, there were 35 aircraft. We flew from Biggin Hill in London to Sydney in Australia in a race and, um, there's lots of things that can go wrong from weather <laughs> to fuel, to not having fuel, which we didn't have in Calcutta. They, somebody, well, they stole all the fuel and we had to buy it again. Um, but the problems that can go wrong, if you, if you're prepared, if you're trained, if you've got a well-maintained aircraft, um, you can only deal with the problem as it hits you. And mm. I think being able to be calm enough, and I, I love the British Airways pilots' voices. They make you calm in any situation, you know. So matter of fact. Yeah. And I think just looking in in a situation like that, and um, there there was a father and son who had a fight on the on, in the plane on the way to I think we were in Egypt, and they turned the aircraft upside down in a hailstorm <laughs> because the father was the private pilot, the son was a commercial pilot, and the father. Was telling the sun what to do, and they were they didn't agree. And fortunately, they landed in safely in uh, Hail in Egypt, mm. and decided to give up the trip to Australia and went back. <laughs> but it just shows you it, it's not about that experience about self confidence.
0: Yeah, no, it's uh, that's uh, that's an interesting one, isn't it? That uh, uh, they they've argued there and uh, and, and turned back, but and I'm assuming you managed to, to make it successfully.
1: We did, we got all the way, um, I mean, it was was fascinating. And, you know, I look back at it now and I used to be scared of flying to Doval or Lutuke because you were flying over the sea here and you're standing on the beach in Bali and the next place is Phuket and you've landed in Myanmar, which, you know, you had like eight hours to get out of because it was a military Mm. procession was the next day and they were shutting down all these incredible places flying around Ayers Rock in your own little aeroplane. Yeah. It was a big boy's adventure, but it was a lot of responsibility to to getting it right and not panicking.
0: You've just reminded me of a, a really great book that I read last year, The Moth and the Mountain, um, about a, uh, an English chap who decided prior to the first summit of Everest to fly in a little tiger moth, the double biplane uh, the little biplane and uh, went from the UK and pretty much crash landed on the mountainside at Everest and uh, and then decided to, to try and summit it. I'll, I won't tell you whether it was a successful summit or not but uh, yeah. I can guarantee it wasn't the first person to uh, uh, to, to, to successfully summit but a really interesting story if you do want to That's sort sweet. of potentially relive some of those days um but uh i really now want to just touch on um uh you know you sent over a favorite quotes as well and um, by uh, maya angelou um saying if you're going to live leave a legacy uh make a mark on the world that can't be erased and that you said it resonated with you. It was something that you are now thinking about and obviously ties back in to the work you're doing with Life Books. And can you just expand on what that sort of means for you and, uh, and why?
1: Yeah, so, so when I started, I, I used to do a little public speaking called Inspiring Your Parents, a project to live for and because that's why I started and gave my dad a project and with many people especially during COVID it was about having a project and a number of terminally ill people do their life books because it actually gives them something to focus on which is not their death but moving on from that I started looking into why people were doing their autobiographies and a lot was about having that legacy leaving a mark on the world that can't be erased and the importance for for people is to actually know that it doesn't matter what their life was, that they, 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 it meant something to them. So I've adapted my presentation now to the value of legacy, not money. And Maya Angelou's quote is perfect um, for that. But a lot of that presentation comes from the fact that we're all going to have a legacy. It doesn't matter whether it's you, me, a company, we all have a legacy and is it one that you're going to be happy with and do you ever stop to think what your legacy will be and my presentation goes around the fact that um alfred nobel in 1888 um was in paris and his brother died ludwig and he saw the obituary for his brother but they thought it was him and it said le marchand de la est mort, mort the merchant of death is dead the man who was responsible for killing more people than anyone else has now died himself because he was the inventor of dynamite and gelignite. And he thought, my God, that's gonna be my legacy. And a few years later, he took his whole fortune and he created the five Nobel prizes that we know him for today. And there was a man who had an opportunity to see his legacy and changed it. And I always, in, in my presentation, what I talk about is the fact that my legacy was gonna be airline food. And I don't think I really helped many people through that. And I've changed it now to the 10,000 people around the world who are holding a life book in their hand and a, a memoir.
0: That's that's a really nice spin, isn't it? To actually reassess your aims and your life uh, through the lens of the future. And you know, you've managed to turn around and actually provide something of value to, to so many people that you know, is, is is quite unique. It is, you know, very. It, it is unique. You know, there's nothing else to say about it. Um, but you know, just as our sort of time draws to a near to, to a close here, Roy, um, what have you got coming up? You know, what's what's next? Is there is there a next, or is it just continuing with Life Books, moving into those new markets, and giving people the opportunity around the globe to to tell their story and and hold on to that piece of history?
1: I think. As an entrepreneur, the problem is there's always the next. There's always something crowding your mind. There's always something you're seeing that could be done better. And I I think one of the things at the moment that I'm noticing is that the the food banks that are popping up in in the world, in the UK and the need for food banks. And is there a better way to do that? But um, that that's at the back of my mind. And it's something, you know, when when I'm uh, in the shower, I can think about but my, my goal really is I, I want to be doing thousands of these life books around the world and I want to be providing that legacy for families. And to me, you can't do better than that. And I, I don't if I have to stop now, you know, if, if my life ended now, at least I know that that's happened. And I look I'm sitting here in our library where we've got copies of every one we've done and I look at the titles and I just smile because. And my favourite one is looking back in embarrassment, and all my sins remembered, and things like this. And people yeah. are very humble with their titles. Um, it's very good. So
0: that's that's nice. Um, yeah, it's uh, and long may uh, you know these books continue to be produced, and long may you be able to look into into the library and uh, and have a little chuckle at some of the titles as well. But um, Roy, if anybody's interested in finding out more about life books, where where would they be going? Lifebook
1: UK is our website, and uh, literally a week ago we refreshed it completely, so there are some fabulous, um, it, it's really looking good, and you'll notice we got three packages, we've got a Royal Imperial and Signature, and the image on the Royal one is my wife, uh, Yvette, who's my co-founder, it's a wedding picture, which uh, we used as the jacket of uh, that one, and uh, I guess that's uh, part of our legacy as well, so that's it's Lifebook exciting. UK
0: lifebook uk well Roy, thank you ever so much um for coming on today and it'll be great to again have you back in once maybe you've thought a little bit more about that food bank issue and, and your next steps as well
1: it'd be a pleasure thank Brilliant. you joshua thank you for inviting me thank you